Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm very pleased to say that our next guest is Professor Robert Schiller, Nobel Laureate and Yale professor. Back in the year 2000, at the height of the dot-com bubble, Professor Schiller wrote a very well-known book, Irrational Exuberance. Professor, I wonder if you had to write that book today and someone said to you, you can't write about tech stocks, you've got to write about Bitcoin. What would be in that book, Professor? Absolutely. Every edition of that book came out with a new bubble and a different market. (laughs) So yes, it would be Bitcoin. Bitcoin is uh, the captured the world's imagination. I, I, was, I, I was in Russia the other day, and there, every, it's everywhere. Uh, it shows how contagion of ideas can spread across the entire world and affect markets. How do you define a speculative bubble in something like Bitcoin? At least with the tech companies, you could have sat there and said, well, here's the P-E ratio. There isn't really much right. of an E, and this is why it's a speculative mania. What do you do with Bitcoin? Well, I've been starting to think about that. So the Bitcoin enthusiasts say it will be a medium of exchange. Yeah. It will be money. So let's take that and go assume that it replaces money completely. I mean, is that a dream? <laughs> and then I would go to some of the demand for money models that economists have made. But the velocity of Bitcoin might be totally different. Yeah. Uh, so I, I could try to get a fundamental value for Bitcoin. But it would be largely just guesswork. I was speaking to someone just last night and they said, I cannot be invested in something. I have zero risk tolerance for something when I don't know the difference of why it trades at 400, 4,000 yeah. or 40,000. And yeah. then that seems to be the way traditional Wall Street minds think about, about Bitcoin. But this isn't a traditional Wall Street product. This is a retail product. Yeah. I uh, think we, we, here's a, a job for a young analyst. Figure out. Very much so. (laughs) But the problem is it's going to be depending on assumptions about a wild future. And uh, I would say let's have like five different P.E. ratios. (laughs) They'll all be all over the map and we still won't know. Professor Paul Donovan over at UBS said bubbles are irrational. So don't try and use rational analysis to to work out when this thing's going to burst. Is that decent advice for anyone on the outside looking in? But you want to know what it will burst to. So you have to have some idea when it's overpriced and when it's underpriced. Uh, another thing about the bubble metaphor, which is unfortunate, is it tends to, the, the metaphor of a bubble, you know, a soap bubble bursts and it doesn't come back, right? Yeah. You can get a different bubble, but you can't get the old one back. But in financial markets, they're never quite done. Bitcoin burst in, what was it, 2013. And I, we, most of us thought it was done. But here it comes roaring back. So it might burst again and come up again. Uh, That's why I don't know if I I like the word epidemic. It's a speculative (laughs) epidemic. That's better. Just in terms of how you characterize a bubble, some people would define it by um, the order of which retail gets in. Wall Street first, retail last. The retail investor marks the top. Wall Street starts getting out. Can you apply the same thoughts to Bitcoin when it seems to be the other way around? The retail's first and Wall Street second? Well, you know, in uh, my study of the difference between individual and professional investors, uh, I, I find that when it comes to things like this, they're not that different. Professional investors work well when they have something that they can analyze, but there's nothing clear to analyze here. 
So I think they may be just as vulnerable to bubbles as retail. Just as a final comment on this, Professor, do you worry about the infrastructure that not enough thought and time has been given to having these kind of things trade on an exchange as a futures oh, well, product? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure it, it was a good idea to launch futures and, uh, because uh, it, it's still not a reputable product. It's still wild. On the other hand, launching a futures market might help calm this market. Uh, it's been extremely volatile. Yeah. And generating futures, there's been a lot of alarm that generating futures markets will generate even more volatility. But I think it will probably more likely settle markets down a little bit. Professor Robert Schiller, Nobel Laureate and Yale Professor. to uh, Washington, in a sense, because it is the number two story this week. Um, we'll have the Fed down there and, of course, the tax debate and uh, the efforts to put together a spending bill. Isaac Boltanski gets paid to follow all that for Compass Point. He is the senior vice president there, and he joins us now. Good morning, Isaac. Good morning. Uh the, uh, the another analyst, I won't give a name, but basically said, you know, there's a couple of things that is are going to be happening this week. Um, the the uh, conference committee is going to have a photo op and the president is going to give a speech on Wednesday about taxes. But that's not the thing to watch because the real action is behind the scenes. Right. As they uh, as they try to conduct a math exercise and make all the parts fit financially. Sure. I think, I think it's important to not miss the forest for the trees here. There's going to be a week of speculation, political theater, and, and dubious details. But at the end of this week, I think we're going to have a really good picture of where the tax bill is. And the GOP is pushing to actually have this conference committee done by Friday in the hopes of having something to the president's desk by Wednesday of next week. Now, I think that timeline is likely to slip. But it's realistic, given that everything to date has been done at warp pace. When we get a bill, a two-part question. One, is anybody going to really know what's in it? And two, how many mistakes will there be? I read a funny story over the weekend. A, a group of tax accountants got together and put together the uh, Tax Accountant's Guide to Avoiding Taxes based on what was in the bills so far. Yeah, I think, uh, Michael, I think you're absolutely right. Th this bill uh, is being written at such a hurried pace that there will undoubtedly be a slew of mistakes and loopholes and unintended consequences. And a concerning theme that, that I have when thinking about risks for 2018 is that uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure this Congress will have the capacity to come back and enact a legislative fix bill uh, for some of those loopholes. So the, the bill that ultimately gets uh, passed into law later this year is something I think we're going to have to live with for quite some time, which is concerning because it will be riddled with mistakes, loopholes, and unintended consequences. Isaac, it feels like all roads lead to and lead from the corporate tax rate and whatever that may well be. Both bills have it at 20%. The president kind of hinted at this 22% number, and 22 kind of came out of nowhere where is your base case right now? Is it the 20 or the 22? 
Sure. I think that the, the framing this as a, as a math exercise is exactly right. And because it's a math exercise and there are procedural limitations in the Senate regarding um, uh, revenue neutrality, our view is that the final rate is going to settle somewhere closer to 22% and will likely be effective in 2019. You put those two concessions together, and right there, you've picked up about $300 billion in extra revenue to fill in gaps elsewhere in the, in the bill. So the other thing we need to work out once you've, once you've worked out the corporate tax rate is what happens with SALT deductions. There seems to be some flexibility around this if you talk to people in the administration. What do you think that comes out looking like, Isaac? I think this is something that's important for your listeners in particular. The decimation of the SALT deduction is something that um, we've heard a fair amount from, from our clients who live on the, the coast in particular in high, co- in high tax states. There has been a deal that would allow for up to $10,000 worth of property taxes to be deducted. But what's interesting is that over the past week or so, uh, we've started to hear more and more chatter from key stakeholders that there might be a deal to allow at least some degree of income to be deducted as well. It's too early to tell how that will uh, look or exactly what the mechanism will be, but that would be a win for, for I would think, reticent Republicans in high-tax states and also the mortgage industry that's been concerned that the decimation of SALT would make the mortgage interest deduction, which has survived, relatively useless. I want to uh, uh, do a shameless plug for Sahil Kapoor, our congressional correspondent for uh, Bloomberg News, story on the Bloomberg Today uh, asking the question, will middle-class folks notice their tax cut? He points out in 2009, there was a one-year tax break worth $800 for married couples in 95% of working households, and people got about, oh, $15 a week and 25% of the people who were surveyed thought their taxes had gone up. Nobody noticed that they got a tax break. So is this bill uh, that's being touted as uh, the biggest thing of all time by the president actually going to be a win for Republicans? Well, right now it's polling terribly, and it's hard to believe that that polling is going to improve. We're going to have to wait and see, though, until probably the second quarter of next year, because let's say this passes this year, and that means the individual rate uh, reductions go into effect beginning of next year. The IRS will be directed to actually change its withholding amounts uh, at the beginning of next year. And so yeah. there's a potential for folks to actually see some change in their own pocketbooks. So, the Isaac, magnitude and the political ramifications yet to be seen. Though. I do want to come to you on, on why this is polling so badly. Is it the content of the bill or the way it's been communicated? I think it's all of the above, Jonathan. I really do. I think it's it's the it's the tone, the tenor, the speed, and the undeniable focus primarily on a corporate rate reduction. Everything else is peripheral in this bill. The corporate rate reduction is the tentpole. So, Mike, why have we got this focus on the corporate side of the bill when this was meant to be a consumer-focused, get-the-middle-class-of-America-a-tax-cut? It doesn't seem to me that many people are convinced by that, Mike. I think the politics were that it was supposed to be, at least you know, the publicity was that it was supposed to be, but the intent all along was to bring down the corporate tax rate. Uh, Isaac, uh, very quickly, just because we're so focused on taxes doesn't mean there aren't other things Congress has to do. They punted the, uh, b- the spending bill, uh, the continuing resolution, into next week. Are, are we going to see a, a government shutdown at some point? 
My sense is that if the tax bill gets done uh, middle of next week, the odds are high that there will be a shutdown at the end of the week. If the tax bill isn't yet done uh, by the December 22nd deadline, then there'll be another short-term punt because getting the tax bill is one through 10 on the to-do list uh, for Republicans right now. Do Democrats keep going along with the idea of uh, punting it, uh, you know, putting off the day of reckoning? I think they will, but with increasing levels of political concessions necessary. Um, look, there, I, I, I firmly believe there will be a shutdown at some point over the next few weeks. It's really just a question of figure out, figuring out when the tax bill will get done, and then we can go from there on prognosticating regarding the next shutdown. Well, we will get back to you for uh, prognostications when, <laughs> uh, as things happen. All right, Isaac Boltanski with Compass Point Investment. Thanks for joining us this morning. I want to know when Viraj Patel, the ING FX strategist, who joins us on the telephone now, is going to start covering Bitcoin and his regular FX wrap. Does this come into your world, Viraj, or does it not matter yet? It's starting to come into our world, but not, not so much. I wouldn't call it a currency just for now. It's trading like an asset, right? So yeah. if I'm an FX strategist, it's not, it's not necessarily a currency, but it's definitely what it does. I mean, one of the things, we haven't done a lot of work here, admittedly, but we are starting to take a look at it closely. It's having knock-on implications for certain markets, right? If you look at it from the Chinese renminbi market, you start to see sort of the, the, the forward point trading off when, when you sort of saw um, Bitcoin uh, futures exchanges closing uh, earlier this year. Similarly, when Zimbabwe were sort of, um, you know, you had the elections around noise around there, you sort of saw Bitcoin imp having imp implications for the African currencies around there. So it's starting to have knock-on effects, and there's definitely more work that we could do. But as a, as a currency, we're just not there labeling that. Okay. Surveillance today, of course, brought to you by Cohn Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory. Look ahead, gain insight. Imagine more the professionals at Cohn Resnick can help your business break through. Find out more at Resnick.com. So we can move on from G10 plus one and just concentrate on G10, I guess, Farage. Um, the pain trade of this year so far has been dollar strength that did not come. Dollar strength that pretty much everyone called for but did not materialise. Do you see the dollar getting the kind of bid in 2018 that so many people hoped and predicted it would in 2017? Well, not at all. I think this year was the learning point for markets. I think we fell into a Trumpflation trap earlier this year. Um, a lot of promises that the U.S. economy would be reflating, potentially generating 3% uh, trend U.S. growth, 2% above 2% U.S. inflation. We just haven't seen the evidence in the uh, underlying U.S. data to, to convince you that the dollar has another sort of cyclical upside. And so for us, we see three broad reasons why we expect this dollar cycle to continue turning lower. Uh, one, the economics of a strong dollar doesn't make sense based on this sort of tax reform bill. For us, we focus on the sort of textbook negative, which is the fact that you're increasing the fiscal deficit without changing the long-run trend growth in the U.S. Second, the politics of the, 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 the a strong dollar doesn't make sense as well. We've heard the president say he doesn't want a stronger dollar. We actually do, uh, did some analysis, and we looked in our outlook that 
the second and third terms of a Republican presidency is actually outright negative for the dollar. Now, this may be coincidence, but if you actually look at sort of um, some of the rhetoric you hear from past previous Republican administrations, plus the fact that you have midterm elections coming up as well, both could be uh, uh, negative, I guess, politically for the dollar. And the third and most important point that we, we point to, and this is what happened in 2017, the rest of the world is catching up to a late U.S. cycle. And that's where when the rest of the world growth is outperforming the U.S. growth, the, the dollar will take its cue from that. And we actually think that, you know, you've got a 3 to 5% narrowing also decline of the dollar just for every percentage point outperformance in the US, of the rest of the world from the U.S. economy. And that's where the dynamics will be early next year. Uh, I was going to say, who's better? I mean, uh, do you want to hold euros, even though the BCB isn't going to be raising rates, um, and so the interest rate differential still favors the United States. You want to hold the yen because people hold the yen. Uh, what pair does best against uh, the dollar? Well, it's certainly eight, two, two, two sets of currencies. One where there's stronger growth uh, potential and there's certain, certainly in attractive investment environments in the emerging markets. We pinpoint, say, EM Asia, sort of a preferred investment destination going next year, as well as Central and Eastern Europe. But it, it, when it comes to the euro, I think there's still a bit of juice left from this ECB story going into next summer. Certainly what, from an FX market, which prices over an infinite time horizon, yes, sure, the ECB won't be hiking next summer, but certainly they'll start to let the foot off the pedal when it comes to talking about potential rate hikes. You know, the economy should be sound enough for them to start at least considering it. And maybe it might be a late 2018 story, early 2019 story for the yeah. actual rate hike to come through. But at least the consideration should be euro dollar at 125 in our view. Is there anything that you see in the eurozone economy that suggests that core inflation is going to pick up anytime soon, Farage? Because if that's what's moving things at the ECB, that ain't moving much. You're spot on, but it's kind of like a global phenomenon right right now, right? Core inflation across the G10 spaces, is, is there is no sort of underlying inflationary pressure. So it makes the likes of the Eurozone and Japan less of an anomaly. Um, there's, if you look at it by logic, there's a lot more slack in the Eurozone labor markets. Now, we, I, I wrote once earlier this year suggesting that banking on the Phillips curve is a risky strategy, but it is. And But if, if there's anywhere where at least you're going to get a couple of percentage points positive surprises, it's probably the eurozone relative to the U.S. right now, and that's where the euro dollar view comes in. Well, you've got um, U.S. fundamentals uh, good, um, trend growth uh, better, um, the real neutral rate in the U.S. higher than uh, in Europe. So how long can the dollar trend down? Certainly, I think that's the euro dollar view has its sort of one one potential repricing opportunity. Then after that, it's kind of a slow burner. I think that's where we've, we've, we've kind of markets are priced in the relative eurozone and U.S. dynamics. It's it's a trade weighted dollar that kind of has we will lose ground against the pro growth currencies, especially yeah. the emerging markets. You know, we our title for the our FX outlook was happy hour. We do think that the current Goldilocks growth investment environment will continue at least for the next six to nine months. Yeah. Like with any good happy hours, they'll probably end at some point. But that's but that's a late 2019 story for us. And when they end, you want to get out before everyone else <laughs> tries to get out and the mess yeah. starts. Faraj Patel, ING, FX strategist. You're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance.
We're talking with Don Rissmiller. He is the chief economist at Strategus. Uh, Don, I was uh, noticing that um, Larry Summers yesterday wrote a piece that said the U.S. economy is on a sugar high right now because the signs of market and economic strength are largely unrelated to government policy. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, we haven't done much in the way of policy, at least on the fiscal side, uh, yet. I think there's some hope, maybe there's some aspirational moves. If we look at consumer confidence, you know, that's at or near highs. If we look at business confidence, small businesses are saying they're more optimistic. Even CEOs, if we look at the Business Roundtable survey, have said they're a bit more optimistic. So maybe there's some expectation of policy, but I think it's fair to say we haven't had much actual policy uh, put in place yet. Yet I do think confidence matters. And it matters if we get some follow-throughs. And a tax bill in a few weeks here, depending on the structure of it, uh, could matter at least in the short run. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. If we get something along the lines of what's been talked about, a 20% uh, tax rate and lower taxes on pass-throughs, small businesses to the extent that they can use it, do you anticipate a lot of business investment? Is a supply-side boost going to boost growth? So one thing we're watching is whether we get that lower rate in 2018 or 2019. So there's still some debate on that. I think the better in, in the sense of being more of a boost uh, package for growth would be for that rate, even if it's not 20, even if it's 22 or 23, to uh, take effect here in uh, 2018 as we, we move forward here. But if it is delayed, I, I think that you will see much less of an immediate impact, uh, which may be obvious. But uh, there's a lot of uh, things to be worked out and a few things to, to pay attention to, but we should know soon. That's the good news. What is the political risk uh, in the area of a government shutdown and or the debt ceiling? Those issues punted into the future, at least next week for the continuing resolution by Congress. And uh, it isn't clear when they'll get to the debt ceiling. Yeah, that's right. And I honestly wish we would just get rid of this uh, item in its uh, entirety, but we, we're stuck with it. And so we've chosen a few short-term patches. We could have dealt with this a few months ago. Uh, it was really hard to deal with right now in the midst of everything else that's going on. So an extension for uh, a little bit of time here makes sense, but we're not done and it's going to come back. Government shutdowns aren't something we worry too much about. They have a short-term impact on growth. You can see a, a modest impact on GDP as an example, but often workers are paid uh, eventually. And so uh, I wouldn't worry too much about it. One of the things that uh, we were talking with Bob Schiller earlier about, and of course he's Mr. Housing, uh, the case Schiller indexes and everything, is the impact of the tax deal on housing. Because if you double the personal exemption, fewer people will be taking the mortgage credit. And maybe uh, that has an effect on how many homes are sold. I'm wondering how much of an effect that has on the economy, on GDP. We haven't seen uh, residential housing have a big impact in recent quarters. Right. And that's one reason we wouldn't expect a big hit, which is housing is usually an early cycle variable, but this was a very strange cycle. So if we were in year nine of a more typical cycle, housing would typically be elevated to a point where it could fall. Uh, here, I think we've taken two steps forward, one step back. So for this particular cycle, uh, I think that we're still just moving higher in a very, very gradual uh, pace there. It's certainly a regional issue. You know, if we look at certain states, certain states that may have 
uh, different deductibility of both the, the mortgage uh, items as well as the state and local taxes. That could have a regional hit, but we have to see how exactly that gets worked out. Is it a cap? Is it a total uh, repeal of some of those deductions? Again, we will know soon. Uh, the uh, the uh, other question, of course, uh, besides the Fed and what happens in uh, Congress as far as taxes is we're going into an election year, which usually provides some volatility. But we're looking at a VIX, you know, basically in the nines. Uh, do you think it picks up in the coming year or has Wall Street inured itself to all the political sturm und drang and isn't going to really worry until maybe we get to November? I have to think we see some pickup. I mean, we're at levels that are so low that it, it won't take much here to get some volatility. And we do have some items, whether it's on the trade side, uh, whether it's some of those packages that we've launched. All right. Don Rispiller, thank you for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.